You may be seated. Words are powerful. If there is anything that I believe in my life, and I believe the other pastors on our staff would acknowledge that I hold this, if there is anything else that I believe in my life is I believe that words have power. I believe that words can change the way that we see the world. I believe that words can change the way that we see God and see ourselves. That words can in fact be received into our hearts to utterly transform us into something new. The old saying goes that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And all of us who understand the power of words, all of us who understand the influence of words and the effect of words, knows that that idiom is just false. It's false. In fact, words can be used to build up or words can be used to tear down. If you doubt at all the power of words, take for, don't take for granted that there are some words that you never forget. You never forget the day that you proposed to your bride and she says yes. You'll play that over and over and over. You never forget the first time that your baby tells you that they love you, daddy. I love you, mommy. Or maybe the first time they say daddy or mommy altogether. You never forget the first time that you hear your husband say the word divorce. It lodges into your brain and it's played over and over and over. You never forget the time that you hear your wife tell you that you're a failure. You never forget the time that you hear your children for the first time scream out, I hate you. No, those words are powerful. Words may not be sticks and stones, but they are dynamite. And many of them are blowing apart our homes, and many of them are blowing apart our lives from the inside out. And James, he tells us that our words are like a spark. And this tiny little spark ignites a great and mighty forest fire. The words that are most powerful in our lives are the words that are spoke by the people that we love the most. And far too often those words are being used to burn down our houses. Proverbs talks about our speech, talks about our tongue more than it talks about anything else. Because the view that Proverbs has is that your words reveal your heart. Your words reveal your wisdom or lack thereof. Your words reveal what it is that you're thinking and what it is that you're feeding yourself and you're pouring into yourself. That eventually all of that is going to overflow and come out. In fact, it talks about it some 90 times in the book of Proverbs. And so if we are to hear anything that Proverbs says, we should hear what it has to say about God-fearing, God-centered speech. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Proverbs 15. Proverbs chapter 15. We're going to read the first four verses together. If you'll stand with me as we read God's Word together. Proverbs chapter 15 verse 1 says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but 
The mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. You know, I find it to be true very often that people see a disconnect between the gospel and real life. I find it true that people have this understanding that the gospel means that I am forgiven, or can be forgiven at least. The gospel means that I am to love God with all of my heart, and with all of my soul, and with all of my strength. And and, and then on the other side, on the other hand, over here we have this understanding that the Bible also has kind of some moral expectations. The Bible also has kind of some, some Christian ethics that we are to live by, some moral absolutes that we are to apply to our lives in the context of, of sex or in marriage or in uh, parenting or any other thing. But what we have trouble seeing is how those two things intersect. What we have trouble seeing is how the, uh, what we should do and the morality and the ethic that we live out in our life is to flow out of the gospel. And so we understand that the gospel saves us, but we aren't sure what that means for our marriage. And we aren't sure what that means for our parenting. And we aren't sure what that means for us at work. And we aren't sure what that means for us in dating. And we aren't sure what that means for us with our money. We aren't sure how the gospel comes into all of these other areas of our lives. But I think very central to the book of Proverbs. For those of us who are New Testament Christians, we should understand that one of the things that the book of Proverbs is doing is the book of Proverbs is painting for us the portrait of what a man or woman who loves the gospel with all of their heart, how they will live. It is painting for us a portrait so that we might see more clearly how these things intersect in our life. How the gospel and real life issues like marriage and parenting and speech and money and work. How all of those things come together and they intersect so that God might be the center of everything. I get that from our text this morning from verse 3. It says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place. Keeping watch on the evil and the good. Sounds very similar to what we said a few weeks ago uh, in Proverb 1-7, right? What did it say? It says the beginning of all wisdom is fear of the Lord, right? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge or the beginning of wisdom. It's the same principle and it's being reiterated. that That, again, is the foundation that all of this house is built. That all of the house of a wise life. All of the house of a godly life is built on this platform, built on this rock, Jesus says, of fear of the Lord. You see, God's eyes being everywhere is either really, really good news or really, really bad news, depending on who you are. And this is what Proverbs is teaching us, that if you are a foolish person, If you are an evil person, if you are a wicked person, and you are following after the natural pathway of life, if you're living out of your desires, living out your appetites, indulging yourself on all the things that you want, if you're living according to what you think is smart, if you're living according to what you think is wise, if you're following after the deceptive heart that is in your chest, then this is bad news. 
it's bad news. It's bad news to realize that God's eyes are everywhere because not only do they see here in time and space, but he sees inside of your mind and he sees inside of your heart. In fact, everywhere that there is and everywhere that there isn't, God is there and God sees there. So God knows when you do something good, but your heart is wicked. God knows when you give generously, but you don't give cheerfully. God knows when you do all the things that you do so that people hold you in higher esteem. You see, when you're a foolish person, anything good that you do only further accuses you. Only further indicts you. Because every time you do something good, independent of God, you are trying to show that you are righteous in and of yourself. And in doing so, you are separating yourself from true righteousness and bringing infinite offense against an infinitely holy God. And so him seeing everything, him knowing everything, him knowing every corner of your heart and every corner of your mind, that's not good news. But if you're what the Bible would call a wise person, if you're what the Bible would call a good person, if you're a person that's not standing before God with your own good name and your own good works, but instead are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, instead are clothed in His holiness, and you are living out your life in Him, then you know what God sees? He sees every sprout of faith in your fledgling commitment to Him. He sees every ounce of faithfulness in your heart, no matter how small it is. He sees in your life a desire and a a, a want to, even if sometimes he doesn't see the fruit that in his holiness and in his righteousness he desires to see as you increasingly become sanctified in Christ Jesus. And so it's good news that God knows what's in your heart. He knows that that you have committed your life wholeheartedly to Christ Jesus, even if sometimes you live half-heartedly. See, here's what all of this amounts to, and here's how all of this intersects. Is that if you are a person who loves the gospel, if you are a person who reveres the Lord and is in awe of the Lord and has a passion for the Lord, you will live a wise life. You won't always make wise decisions, but you will live a wise life because you will want God to be obvious in your life in everything that you do. You will want God to be the apparent center of all of your life, which all of your life is built upon. Having tasted the goodness of of the gospel applied to the penalty of your sin, you will now want to see the goodness of the gospel applied to every other area of your life. You will want to know what it will look like to have the gospel applied to your marriage. You will want to know what it will look like to have the gospel applied to your job. You will want to know what it will look like to have the gospel applied to your parenting. Having tasted the goodness of the gospel, having tasted its sweetness, you will want more and more and more of it. And through that, as you pursue that, as you begin to apply the gospel in every other area of your life, wisdom will begin to permeate your life. Wisdom will begin to flow out of your life. So I ask you this morning, before we even talk about speech, is the gospel obvious in your life? 
Is the gospel obvious in your life? As one who knows the greatest forgiveness, should you not be a person known for forgiving? As someone who has tasted the sweetness of the manifold mercies of God, should you not be known as a merciful person? One who has experienced the generosity of God poured into you, should you not be known as a generous person? See, the gospel and the way that we live are inseparable in the Christian life. Everything we do flows out of it. The question that's front and center in Proverbs 15, though, is how does a wise person, how does a God-centered person, a God-fearing person, a God-loving person speak? How do they use their words in a way that shows God as being the obvious center of their life? How do they use their words so that their words make much of the gospel and highlight the gospel and build up the gospel? How is it that a person that has tasted the gospel will now speak? Verse 15, uh, verse 1 in chapter 15 is probably the proverb that has helped me the most over the course of my life in ministry. It was maybe one of the first Proverbs that I ever, I've ever memorized, and it is one that I am certain has kept me from knowing much pain. Not that I've always followed it, but I've tried to apply it into my life, and I want to hand it over to you as your shepherd. I want to hand this over to you, and I believe that this is something that is, if it's turned loose in your home, and in fact, if it's turned loose not just in our family at home, but in our church family, I believe it will change the culture. I, be I believe it will bring healing to some places that is desperately in need of healing. It says that a soft answer, your translation may say a gentle answer, turns away wrath. Now I want you to understand the assumption here. The assumption is, is that, that someone has already come in wrath. The assumption here, as a matter of fact, if you were to go back to Proverbs 14, you can see that there is a, a, a king that is filled with wrath. And so the assumption is, is that someone has come to this wise man and is speaking wrathfully, pouring out wrath. Venom is spewing. Vitriol is everywhere. Like, like it's, he's come and he has just completely undressed this man, eviscerated this man. Now, how would the wise man want to respond? The wise man is a human being. The wise man is a man with a sin nature. And you can imagine that as the, the blood runs to the front of his face, as his adrenaline begins to pump, as his teeth begin to grit, what he wants to do is he wants to undress this man in a tirade of logic that makes him feel smaller than he's just felt. He wants to speak in a way that makes this man feel worse than how he just caused him to feel. He's, he, he is ready and thinking through all of the things that he could say and pointing out all of the flaws that he can consider. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that at all. Instead, he speaks in a tone that is utterly foreign to the wrathful man. He speaks in a tone that is polar opposite of the wrathful man. He speaks softly. He speaks gently. He speaks kindly. You know, Paul tells us that one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit 
is gentleness. And one of the things that we see most often in Jesus' life, if you'll even think back a few weeks ago in uh, Matt, the beginning of Matthew 12, one of the things that we see in Jesus' life as being the, the prototype of a spirit-filled man is Jesus was a, a gentle man. Jesus sometimes said hard things, but he never said them unkindly or in a way that was contrary to being filled with the spirit of gentleness, wanting to, to shepherd people toward godliness. You see, there's something that happens in a person when they're rescued from the edge of death. There's something that happens from a person when they are, are snatched from the jaws of hell. When you're snatched from the jaws of hell and you know it, when you're firmly in the grip of an adopting father that you do not deserve his love, there's a humility that comes, isn't there? See, the gospel drains the harshness out of life. The gospel drains the harshness out of life. Because if God has, has dealt so gently with us in our sin, in our infinite offense, how is it that we could deal so harshly with others? Now, when we understand the gospel, when the Spirit begins to take residence in our heart, when the Spirit begins to, to form us more and more into the image of Christ Jesus, as the Word of God begins to take root, as our passion for God continues to grow, as the wisdom continues to infiltrate our life and take over our life, what we will find is we will find ourselves becoming softer and kinder and gentler. And so this man... No doubt understanding who he is before God. No doubt understanding that, that God, as harshly as he deserves to be dealt with, is going to deal with him gently as one of his people. Speaks back kindly. This morning, do you find yourself being a harsh person? Do you find yourself being a harsh person? When your husband speaks, do you just undress him? When your wife says something, do you, do you nitpick and pick everything that she does apart like she just can't win? When your pastors mess up in your church family, do you find yourself just kind of wanting to, to beat them down for a little while? I ask you the question that the gospel demands. If God has dealt so gently with you, how can you deal so harshly with others? If God has dealt so gently with you in the sending of his son, in the bringing you into his family, and washing you clean, and one day wiping the tears from your face, if God has dealt so gently with you, how can you deal so harshly with others? It is a complete misunderstanding, a complete separation and division of real life and the gospel in your life. As one who has known the forgiveness of God, you should be forgiving towards your husband or your wife. As one who has known the mercies of God, you should be merciful towards your children, understanding that you're holding them to a standard that Jesus had to meet for you. He tells us what happens, the result of what happens when the soft answer comes, when the gentle answer comes. 
Now, again, we understand that sometimes there are exceptions. Not every time you respond kindly, not every time you respond gently will it turn away the wrath. Some people are so wrathful, some people have spiraled so deeply that they're, they are refusing, they are resolved not to be turned around. They are resolute in their wrath. But as Proverbs teaches us, most of the time, and I, I can testify that this is the truth, most of the time, when you respond to wrath with kindness, when you respond to wrath gently and softly, most of the time, the wrath goes away. See, the man here is not acting as a coward. I want to make sure you understand that. He is not being dishonest. It does not say that he, he pretends like there's not a problem. It does not say that he pretends as though there's not something direct that needs to be said. It has nothing to do with that. This is a wise man. We know that this man would confront a problem if there was a problem. That this man would deal with an issue that must be dealt with. But the issue here is the way that he would do it. He would not do it harshly. He would do it gently. He would not do it mean. He would do it kindly. He would do it in a way that is honest, a way that is truthful, but in a way that honors the spirit of the gospel, honors the nature of the gospel, honors the nature of what God has done for him. After all, the gospel confronts us, doesn't it? The gospel speaks directly to us. It tells us that we are a sinner. It tells us that we will go to hell if we are not separ if we are forever separated from God unless we come to him in Christ Jesus. But then it says, gently, come. Come to me and find rest. Remember Matthew 11? Come to me and find rest. So the wise man is direct and the wrath goes away. Now, it gives us the flip side. It gives us the other scenario, doesn't it? And I think this is what most of us, I find to be true. When I talk to married couples, I think this is what we typically see. A harsh word stirs up anger. Listen to what it says in verse 18. If you just jump over to uh, chapter 15, verse 18, just a few verses later, it says, A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. He who is slow to anger, quiets contention. So I think what we see in most of our homes is what, what is happening in the second half of this proverb. That had the wise man done what he probably wanted to do, had he spoken in a way that he desired to speak, had he just kind of let loose, it would have just stirred up anger. What would have happened is they would have entered into this vicious cycle and they would have just spiraled and they would have said harsher things and harsher things and harsher things until fellowship and reconciliation were no longer an option. I wonder how many marriages are defined that way this morning. I wonder how many friendships are on the edge of that this morning. Where you're responding back and forth with harshness to harshness. And what's created in your life is this vicious spiral that's taking place. This death loop that is happening. And you're spiraling toward a place until eventually reconciliation is not going to be an option anymore. You're hot tempered. You've, you've, you've lost all sense of logic. And things are just pouring out of you now. How is it that this wise man is able to respond? What, what is the difference between the wise man and the foolish man? Look at verse 28 here in chapter 15. I think you see the difference. It says, the heart of, of the righteous, the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer. Did you hear that? The heart of the righteous 
ponders how to answer. But the mouth of the wicked pours out all things. So, so understand the picture here. The picture is both of them are emotional. Both of them are emotional. Both of them are angry. Both of them are ready to pound their fists. Both of them are ready to eviscerate one another. Both of them are ready to be uh, judge, jury, and executioner. Like They're ready to bring down the wrath, baby. But one stops. And he thinks about what he's going to say before he says it. Imagine that. What wise counsel our mothers used to give us. He thinks about what he's going to say before he says it. He ponders not just what he wants to say, but the effect of what he's going to say. He ponders the way that it will be received. He ponders whether or not it will honor the Lord, whether or not it will honor the spirit of which he has been rescued by the Lord, whether or not it will honor his walk with God. He, he, he processes, and the wise man, again, is able to understand cause and effect the way the unwise man is, not able, is unable to. And so he sees what I say today and what it will be the result of that tomorrow. But not the foolish man. The foolish man just pours out of his mouth all things, it says. Everything that comes up, comes out. His, his, his mouth is outrunning his sense. His emotions have taken hold of him, and now they are controlling him. He's being controlled and dominated by his anger. One flies off the handle. And one stops a minute to get a handle. And that is so often the difference between wisdom and foolishness. As one lets their emotions run wild, one spirals into a death loop, and the other stops for a second, lets the emotion go down, lets the blood drain out of their face so that they can speak coherently and gently and in a way that honors the spirit of the Lord and honors the spirit of the gospel. Ponder what you say to one another, brothers and sisters. Ponder what you say to one another. Ponder the words that are going to be used in your home. Ponder the response that you're going to have with your angry husband or your angry wife. Ponder the way that you're going to respond to your children. Ponder the way that you're going to, to answer them. Ponder the way that you're going to discipline them so that you might do it in a way that builds up the gospel and holds up the gospel and does it in a way that teaches them that God is the center of all things and we don't put him down even when we are angry, even when we are ready to make somebody else feel small and so that we might feel vindicated. Next, look at what he says in verse 2. He says, The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of the fool pours out folly. You're, the, the NIV says that it is, uh, the wisdom is adorned. He's adorning. Uh, the Holman says that wisdom is made attractive. The word that's being translated right there, that's translated commend in ESV and adorned in NIV and attractive in the Holman, is the word that means to dress. So the picture here is that this is a man that is dressed in wisdom. See, your words are the fruit of your wisdom or your foolishness. 
Your words are the fruit. If you are a foolish person, you will have the fruit of foolish words. And you will say foolish things. And you will say them in a foolish way. If you are a wise person, your words will show that. You will say wise things. And you will say them at wise times. And you will say them in wise ways. Your words are the fruit of what you say. And so we see here. This man in, in uh, verse 2, the wise man, he is able to, to make himself attractive. See, in his mind, it's not enough just to say what is true. It's not enough just to say what is right. He wants to do it in a way that is godly. You know sometimes you can be right and ungodly at the same time? Sometimes you can say the truth and be ungodly at the same time. It's not about you being right it's about you being godly. If you have honest things to say, then you have to say them in a way that is adorned in wisdom. You have to say them in a way that uh, attracts people to a wiser point of view. You have to say them in a way that wins them over, away from their wrath, into sensibleness. Into wisdom. Into a, a wise way of seeing the world. You see, the difference between the two people, the wise person and the foolish person in verse 2, is self-control. It's self-control. One of them is a pipe that has burst and is spraying venom everywhere. The other is a deep well that can be drawn from whenever necessary. Polar opposites, complete difference. One has to say everything that comes into their mind. It pours out of them almost without them being able to control it. The other, he's able to keep a bridle on his tongue. He's able to, he's able to, to hold back some of the things that he's thinking. He's able to hold to himself some of his opinions. He's able to hold to himself some of the things that he would feel good for him to say in the moment that he knows would undress the person and destroy any opportunity for reconciliation and faithful service. Self-control is one of the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit too, isn't it? You think about Jesus going to the cross and how did he go? Did he go screaming and flailing and running about? No. He denied himself. And willingly, he laid himself on the cross under control, under his own self-control, restraining the wrath of heaven, restraining the angels that could rescue him. We've already know that he's asked the Father if the, if the cup can pass. In his flesh, he wanted the cup to pass. But he did what was wise. He did what was the will of God. And we see in his life over and over and over, if we follow the ministry of Jesus, we see self-control. And as the Spirit is taking over our lives and is forming us into the image of Jesus, what we are going to find more and more and more of is self-control in us. See, I find it way too often that Christians, and I've, I've told you this before, but I want to I stay here for just a second this morning because it's so appropriate. I find it way too often that I hear Christians say, well, I just say what I think and everybody's just going to have to deal with it. In my house, everybody knows that I'm going to say what my opinion is and they can either like it or lump it. My friends, they just know that when, when, when something's got to rise in me, I'm not going to be that little quiet church mouse on the back pew. I'm going to say what I think. And they say it as though this is a gospel virtue. 
They say it as though this is something that is honorable, something that they should brag about. They have bravado as they're saying this out. I invite you to hear some of what Proverbs says. Proverbs 17, 27, and 28. Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. Listen to Proverbs 18 too. It, just goes, it gets even more extreme. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Proverbs 29, 11. A fool gives full vent to his spirit. But a wise man quietly holds it back. You see the difference? It is not a virtue to say everything that you think. Just as it is not a virtue to indulge all the appetites that you have, just as though it's not a, 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 a virtue to indulge in every sexual appetite that you have, and every uh, appetite of food that you have, and every appetite of sinful pleasure that is abounding around us, this is the same thing. It is not virtuous to say everything that your sinful flesh will feel good saying. In fact, it is not a virtue, it is a vice that is to be put to death at the cross of Christ. There is few things, perhaps no thing, that is more destructive in a home than a hot head and a sharp tongue. You bring together a hot head and a sharp tongue and a fool who is, who is compelled to share all of their opinions, who from it everything just pours out of them, outrunning all of their sins. And I will show you a home that has virtually zero chance, zero opportunity for health in any way. Those are people that cannot thrive. Those are people that will not be well with one another. Those are people that will not think highly of one another. Those are people that will have trouble trusting one another. Guard what you say. Exercise the self-control available to you in the gospel. In verse 4, he says, A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Again with the word gentle. But perverseness in it breaks the spirit. He closes out this little section on speech by basically asking us, what kind of people do you want to be? What kind of people do you want to be? What kind of family do you want to have? What kind of husband do you want to be? What kind of wife do you want to be? What kind of mom do you want to be? What kind of dad do you want to be? What kind of son? What kind of daughter? What kind of grandparent? Who do you want to be? What kind of person do you want to be? What kind of home do you want to have? What kind of church do you want to have? A wise person is, a, is, is a, a tree of life, a spring of life even. That, that it is a person that, that everybody comes to and they live, they leave more encouraged. They leave built up. They leave maybe having erroneous views corrected. Maybe even leave having some things directly said to them. But they leave that conversation encouraged, 
built up because they have just left a tree of life. They've just left someone who is adorned in wisdom, someone who is making wisdom attractive to them, and they are drawing that person in to the wisdom. See, Jesus came to give life, right? Jesus came as the life giver. And as people who bear his name, people who are filled with his spirit, we should be life-giving people. We should be people who speak things in such a way that people are drawn to us. And people want to hear what we have to say. Because he says the inverse is that you speak harshly, you speak as a fool, you speak perversely, and you crush the spirit. There are some wives here today whose spirits are crushed. There are some children here today whose spirits are crushed. Because in your home, you are speaking things to one another, not so that you might give one another a life, not so that one another might be, might be corrected, but so that you might be vindicated, so that you might be seen as the supreme leader, the supreme ruler, the supreme voice in your home. And as a result, everybody else is walking around on eggshells. There's no life in that house. There's no life in that home. Maybe it's a mom that makes everybody feel like a failure. Maybe it's a dad that's waiting to fly off the handle at the smallest thing. Maybe it's a son or it's a daughter and mom and dad are having to tiptoe around you because everything you say is just venom. You are breaking the spirit of your mom. You are breaking the spirit of your dad, of your husband, of your wife. You're breaking their spirits, and the Bible calls you a fool. But there's good news here, too. There's good news here. The assumption is, is that if you come to the tree of life, if you go to a person that is speaking well, you go to a person adorned in wisdom, and you hear what they have to say, that you are, can actually be restored in some way, that, you can, that the life that has been taken from you can be given back to you. In other words, here's what it's saying. If you've been torn down, you can be rebuilt. And if you've torn down, you can rebuild. You see, some of the most powerful words that could be said this morning are, I am sorry. I am sorry. There are some wives they need to hear that more than they need to hear I love you, more than they need a new necklace, more than they want another car. They need to hear from their husband, I am sorry. There are some husbands that are beaten down and feel like complete failures in the eyes of their wife. And they need to hear her say, honey, I am sorry. We need some dads and some moms to grab their children to look at them and say, I am sorry. We need some teenagers to go to their parents and say, I am sorry. I've built you down. I want to build you up as somebody that loves you and cares about you and loves Christ and wants the gospel to come out of me. This morning, let's rebuild our families. Let's rebuild our church. And let's rebuild it on the platform of gospel forgiveness. Let's rebuild it on the platform of gospel repentance. 
If there's brokenness between two brothers in here, let's go to one another and say, I am sorry. If there's brokenness in family, let's go, let's go to one another and let's say, I am sorry. Maybe you need to make a phone call as soon as you get out of here. And you need to say, I am sorry. So that the Lord might begin to use you who once broke the Spirit to rebuild it. What kind of family do you want, brothers and sisters? What kind of church family do you want? What kind of person do you want to be? May we apply the gospel in every single area. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to you. And we bow our hearts and we bow our heads. And we just stand for a second.